there, and welcome to episode 28 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your charming and delightful host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. We're just getting started in season three, and I'm covering two more episodes. So season three, episode three, the second shot, and episode four, Time and Memories. So hey, let's not delay. Let's go to Hawaii. <laughs> Season 3, Episode 3, The Second Shot. Air date, September 30th, 1970. Directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his fourth of 36 episodes. And written by Eric Bersavisi. I think I'm pronouncing that right. This is his first of 12 episodes. In Greece, a sniper is getting an anatomy lesson courtesy of a shirtless Claus Marburg. The shot must be precise, so he's given a special scope that will illuminate the target on the suit jacket that Marburg will be wearing. At the Honolulu airport, the sniper sets up. As Marburg stands on the tarmac, the sniper makes his shot. 5-0 is on the scene. Marburg was hit by a single shot, but no one saw where it came from. Steve orders the whole place searched and tasks Chin Ho with finding the bullet. Why? Because he's so good at it. Marburg survived surgery and should make a full recovery. Steve orders a 24-hour guard on him. Kono delivers some bad news. The search turned up nothing, and the governor wants to talk to him. The governor fills in a few blanks for Steve. Marburg is a West German journalist for an influential magazine, and he's in Honolulu to interview self-exiled Greek Dr. Gregorius Lemira. Steve knows him well. He's been in Honolulu for four months and caused 11 false alarms. Before Steve leaves to talk to him, the governor reminds him that Dr. Lamira is a guest. At Dr. Lamira's heavily guarded home, Steve informs him about Marburg's shooting. Steve thinks that the shooting could have something to do with Dr. Lamira, but Lamira is doubtful. Marburg has been openly critical of Dr. Lamira's decision to exile. So why is he here to interview him? Lamira thinks that Marburg's recent trips to Greece may have put him in the mind to be persuaded to change his viewpoint. The interview ends when Lamira's niece Anna shows up. Steve offers to post a guard outside the compound, but Lamira declines, citing his own ever-present security and bad memories of being guarded in Greece. At the hospital, Steve talks to Marburg. He says he was warned with an anonymous call, but he dismissed it. Then he was so busy preparing to travel that he forgot about it. When Steve tells him that he informed Lamira of the shooting, Marburg says he must be pleased given his criticism. Steve tells him that's not quite the case. Marburg admits that maybe there are powers in Greece who want Lamira dead. Jin finds the bullet in a baggage cart. See, he really is good at it. 
From the position of the baggage cart, Steve is able to determine the sniper's nest. Later, Che Fong gives Steve the forensics results on the bullet. There is not much. The bullet was handcrafted, a sign of a pro. However, it was designed to not expand, something a pro wouldn't do. The bullet's expansion would guarantee a kill. Lamero relocates Marburg to his house to continue his recovery. However, he does so without informing Steve, which goes over really well. Lamira reminds Steve that his degree is in medicine and that Marburg will be taken care of. When Steve points out the assassin is still out there, Lamira assures him that they're quite safe in his compound. At the governor's office, Steve meets Samuel Hammock of the State Department. Dr. Lamira is a symbol of freedom to the opposition party in Greece. It's imperative that the U.S. remain neutral in this situation, but also nothing can happen to Lamira. Oh, by the way, they know that there's an assassination for Lamira planned, but there's no specifics. Good luck! Lamira attends to Marburg, lamenting about giving up his career in medicine to go into politics. To boost his mood, he tells Andreas, his guard, to fetch Anna. But Andreas won't leave. He absolutely will not leave Lamira alone. His partner in security, Paulus, will be back in a few minutes, and then he'll get Anna. This angers Lamira, and he launches into a torrent of abuse in order to persuade Andreas to do his bidding. Andreas is unmoved. He must have worked retail. Thanks to airport theft, a routine check of the coin lockers turns up the sniper's rifle, a benefit to 5-0, but also another curious development if they're dealing with a pro. Marburg is in pain and showing signs of a possible complication. Lamira arranges for him to go to the hospital for an x-ray. Once alone, Marburg dresses and heads downstairs to make a call. All he says is, room one, three o'clock. Dr. Lamira stays behind as Steve escorts Marburg and Anna to the hospital. On the way, he fills them in on the case's progress, speculating about why the sniper might have left the rifle in the locker. Steve suggests that Marburg might have only been a decoy, which Marburg is unsettled to hear. Meanwhile, at the hospital, the sniper is having himself an x-ray and conveniently leaves behind a gun and silencer for the real assassin, Marburg. <laughs> Let me just begin by saying that we begin this episode with a shirtless Eric Braden. So really, once you've hit that pinnacle, where can you go? I kid, but only a little bit. This is one of those interesting, very political episodes in the sense that we are dealing with a possible political assassination. Now, we've kind of dealt with this a little bit before in the previous seasons, but this one actually comes with an actual country, not just one that's been invented for the purpose of the show. They're actually talking about Greece. So back in the late 60s, Greece had a bit of a right-wing coup that took over the country, and it lasted um, from the late 60s, I think, until the early 70s, early mid-70s. So the plot that they're dealing with, the actual political plot that they're dealing with, was actually very much happening at the time. So it was very current events, which I find very interesting because they were actually able to name the country instead of giving us a made-up country as they had previously. And of course, since it's a political plot, we have to bring in the State Department on this. And aside from the State Department guy being like, oh yeah, there is an actual assassination plan, but we got no deeds. Good luck with that. He's not really much of a prick, which is what we've been used to up until this point with State Department people. I think that might be because our State Department guy is played by Walter Brook, who was D.A. Scanlon on the Green Hornet. So that inherent good guyness, he couldn't overcome it to be a State Department prick. Also, he was wearing a fantastic tie, and I think that might also have something to do with it. 
But anyway, yeah, because the situation is so politically charged, not only can the United States not let anything happen to Lemira, but they also have to remain neutral while doing so. So good luck to you on that one too, Steve. So we're dealing with a self-exiled freedom fighter from Greece. And the reason why he's self-exiled is he does believe that there are people who want to assassinate him. So he chose to exile himself to Hawaii. And as Steve points out, because of this paranoia, he's caused 11 false alarms, probably triggered by the State Department, thinking that someone is out to assassinate him and they never came up with anything. So this is why he lives in this massive compound, which is actually once again Robin's Nest from the 1980 Magnum P.I. Of course, if I'm going to be fortified into a place, then yes, put me in Robin's Nest. And he also has ever-present security with him, and it's Andreas and Paulos. They go everywhere with him. He is never alone with anyone. And that's the hurdle that our assassins have to get past. Not only get him into a place where he's vulnerable, but also to overcome the presence of his ever-present security. So the plan that these people come up with is at once both brilliant and incredibly mind-boggling. The opening of the episode explains it to you. Marburg is going to Honolulu. When he lands and is crossing the tarmac, the sniper will shoot him and make it look like a failed assassination attempt that someone was gunning for Marburg because he was going to talk to Dr. Lemira. The actual plot of this is to help endear Marburg to Lemira and get him into a position where he can kill Lemira. Okay, but they're not just shooting him. This anatomy lesson in involves drawing a picture of Marburg's heart on his bare chest and this doctor showing the assassin who never says a word throughout the entire episode where this bullet needs to hit so it doesn't kill Marburg, but it injures him enough and is serious enough that it looks like a convincing assassination attempt. So to help with that, because he's not going to be able, he's not going to walk bare-chested across the tarmac with his heart outline there, he'll be wearing this suit jacket that has like an invisible dot on it. And the sniper is given a special scope so he can see that dot and so he can make that shot. Okay, here's the thing. So while overall this plan is actually quite brilliant, it's a brilliant way to get someone into Lemira's good graces and past his defenses in order to kill him. What the hell? If this dude sneezes, if it, the breeze shifts just a little bit, if he moves just the slightest bit because he has an itch or a muscle twitch, he's gonna die. That sniper will kill him. The plan goes to shit and he's dead. What I'm saying here is that this is an incredibly risky plan, but everybody is super committed to sparkle motion here. Nobody flinches at this. And I think that's a good thing considering <laughs> if you flinch, you're dead. So they managed to pull off this shooting. And I, like I said, this is the glory of television because I don't think anybody is going to A, be crazy enough to do this and B, actually be able to pull it off well. But hey, it's television. We can do this here. So Marburg gets shot, goes to the hospital. Thankfully, the ambulance wasn't delayed and there were no complications during surgery. He's going to make a full recovery. Here is the thing. TV likes to play, TV and movies, like to play a lot with gunshot wounds and the amount of damage they can do. Even though he took a chest shot that went straight through and through, 
didn't hit his heart, it still would have gone straight through, so it probably would have damaged, if not his shoulder blade, maybe a rib or two. There would be more damage to his body done than what's being insinuated, even if he had a really good recovery. He still should have been hurt worse than what he was shown. Because later in the episode, when he gets dressed, I'm like, how did he do that? Because one side of his body should be supremely jacked up from this gunshot wound. I mean, granted, he was wearing a button-down shirt. There was no way he was going to be able to work a pullover. But he gets dressed. He's got trousers on. He's got socks. He's got shoes. He's got a button-down shirt. And he has a blazer. He should have had to take a nap after expending the effort that would have been required to get dressed. But this is television, so we play fast and loose with the whole medical science thing here. Anyway, the plan really is quite brilliant because you put Marburg in the hospital... You get the word out to Dr. Lamira that he was shot probably because of him. And Dr. Lamira already has some inclinations toward Marburg, some friendliness, despite his criticisms, because he believes he can be converted to his side of thinking. So you have that, plus you have him being injured on his behalf. It hits Lamira in a vulnerable spot. There's some sense of feeling responsible for this. And so he gets him out of the hospital, even though Steve has 24-hour guard, he manages to get him out of the hospital and puts him in his compound to recover. Of course that goes over really well with Steve. Steve really loves when things are done behind his back and he's not informed. Like, he, he gets super happy about that. I suppose you have some explanation. Certainly. Then why didn't you tell me? I'd be glad to. <laughs> There's no reason to be angry, isn't there? You remove Marburg from the hospital and from police protection. Please, Mr. McGarrett. I signed my own release. I removed myself. The hospital had no authority to hold me, so the choice was really my own. And the invitation was yours, complete with waiting ambulance. At least you should have informed me. And if I had, now come, Mr. McGarrett, this really shouldn't concern you anymore. In fact, it's one less responsibility for you to worry about. Besides, I am a doctor. And after all, I can take care of the patient myself. Mr. McGarrett, I must admit to have acted rather impulsively, but really, how could I resist? I mean, to be a guest of Dr. Lemira's where the most I'd hoped for were two interviews. It's an extraordinary opportunity. It's also an extraordinary opportunity for the assassin. Is he still with us? I have no reason to doubt that he's not. It's all the more reason why Marburg should stay here. Now, just think of it, Mr. McGarrett. What safer place is there? But of course, Steve ends up relenting because Lemira does make a good point in general that even though the assassin is still out there, his compound is very safe. So we now have the snake in the house with Marburg being housed there to recover and have Lemira look after him. Because again, he can use his manipulation skills on Lemira to get closer to him, but he's also using it on his niece, Anna. Because, of course, when he first meets Anna, he compliments her. And we will not discuss politics until you have recovered, or until I can no longer resist it. At least until tomorrow. See, my niece is as critical as your articles. How much, much prettier she is, Doctor. Well, gallantry from the wounded, how splendid. Lamira recognizes this playful flirtiness between the young people. 
And Marburg's able to use that to his advantage to get more information about Lemira and about his security. And when we meet Lemira for the first time, when Steve goes to talk to him after Marburg's shooting, we see a very composed, educated man who is very committed to his cause. Very open-minded when it comes to people like Marburg who are critical of him but not trying to murder him and believing that he can persuade and convert them to his way of thinking. So it's not exactly surprising that he brings Marburg into his house and that he's able to stand up to Steve to a certain extent. But then later when we see Lamira and Marburg having a conversation, it's actually quite a good performance by John Marley who plays Lamira because he's lamenting about giving up his medical career for politics. Sometimes I wonder what I would have done if I hadn't become a deputy. You know what I was planning? Move back to Skiros, just a small island in the Aegean. I was born there. The wine, the olives, the fish, life was like nowhere else on earth. <laughs> I'm really becoming maudlin. Andreas! Let's get some gayer company. Tell Anna she can join us now. I will, Doctor, as soon as Palos comes back. Oh, now, Andreas, now. But Palos will be back in a few moments. There's no need to wait. I'm sorry, Doctor, but... But what? I can't leave you alone with... With Marburg? <laughs> Don't be a fool. I'm sorry. <laughs> what kind of an idiot are you? This man was almost murdered coming here to see me. What better credentials could he have? Now go do as I say. I can't. You stupid, brainless imbecile! I'm sorry, doctor. You can call me what names you like, but I won't go. Barakalo, Andreas. I know, doctor. I know. Sometimes I feel like I become a prisoner of my own security precautions. And so you see this man who goes from being somewhat melancholy to taking control of the situation and bringing things back to the upbeat to exposing his frustration in full when he can't get Andreas to go get Anna, to leave him alone for just a minute. Because, as he says, he's kind of created a prison for himself trying to stay alive. And you see that frustration. And he gets really abusive with Andreas about it to try to get his way. Because he, I think part of it is that he's used to getting his way. But also part of it is just that frustration of not being able to ever be alone. And it's just adding to his earlier lamenting of not being able to go back to Greece and to Skiros. But like I said, I'm pretty sure Andreas worked in retail at some point because he didn't even flinch when he was being called names. That's veteran retail shit right there. Anyway... So in that scene, you not only get a sense of what Lemira's vulnerabilities are, but you also see the challenge that Marburg's going to have when it comes to killing Lemira. Because at this point, we're not exactly sure. We know he's part of this plot. We don't actually know for sure that he is the assassin. We think maybe he's just going to be the inside man. He's going to lead Lemira to his doom. He fakes having chest pains that there's some added pain to his recovery. So Lemira orders an x-ray 
This time he informs Steve and Steve takes Marburg and Anna to the hospital. Lamira actually stays behind. So at first you think when he makes that phone call to let them know that he's going to be x-rayed at the hospital, you think that's where the hit's going to take place, that Lemire's going to go with them. But Lemire doesn't leave. So now you're kind of wondering what's happening here. Because at this point, he's just the inside man. And it's not until you get to the hospital that you realize, oh, he's going to be the assassin. Because at the hospital, you see the sniper with his shirt off and all of his incredibly hairy glory. Bald on top, hairy everywhere else. And when the nurse steps out of the room, he plants a gun and silencer in one of the drawers. I don't know how he didn't know that this drawer wasn't going to be used a lot, but I guess that's why he makes the big bucks. So he plants that gun and that's when you kind of get the hint that Marburg is actually going to be the assassin. He's leaving that for him. Now, here's the thing. During all of this, 5 of course, has been investigating. They were, they're investigating the airport. They looked everywhere. They made Chen Ho find the bullet. They got the forensics on the bullet. Here's what's interesting about this. Because when they go through and conduct their investigation on the outside, it looks like a pro, but there's something wrong. And it starts with the bullet, with Che Fong telling them, yes, it's handmade, which is common with assassins. Because then if they make their own stuff, A, you can't trace it, and B, they can control it better. We actually saw this in an earlier episode, I think. I want to say it was in the first season, maybe the second. I can't remember. But they talked about an assassin doing his own shotgun shot. So it's not uncommon. But this particular bullet was not designed to expand, which is why it went through and through without doing a whole lot of damage. An assassin's bullet would have expanded because it would have guaranteed a kill. That is the mark of the pro. The fact that it wasn't designed to do that, but a handcrafting suggests that it was a pro, is what gives Steve thinking that there is something more going on here. Later, they find the assassin's rifle at the airport in one of the lockers, thanks to a locker sweep. So this is actually something that maybe might not have been part of the plan. Obviously, the assassin was going to have to leave the airport without looking suspicious. So he left the rifle behind, not necessarily leaving it specifically for 5-0, not knowing that there was going to be airport sweeps of the lockers and it was going to be discovered. It's not a huge deal that it was discovered because there's no real forensic evidence for them to get, but I don't think that was necessarily left for them to find. But it was another curious twist in this case where they think they're dealing with a professional and yet this is something that a professional wouldn't necessarily do. professional wouldn't leave without the job done, but also they wouldn't leave their rifle behind unless they knew they could come back for it. So again, it's got Steve's wheels turning. So when he's in the car with Marburg and Anna going to the hospital, and by the way, this is 1970, so we're talking big boat car, bench seat, all three of them are in the front seat, nobody's wearing seatbelts. That's how we rode back in the day. When he's discussing the updates in the case, he pitches the idea that Marburg might have been used as a decoy in order to lure Steve and 5-0 and other law enforcement away, chasing this would-be assassin, leaving Lemira more vulnerable. And so when we watch that scene, we can see now Marburg's wheels are starting to turn because this wasn't part of the plan, Steve figuring out that he was a decoy. So here's where he starts to improvise. Talk about thinking on your feet. He gets to the hospital knowing that the sniper is going to be there because he's going to leave behind this gun for him to get. 
as the sniper comes out of the hospital and sees Marburg. He gives him a nod to let him know that, hey, yeah, I planted your stuff. Marburg then says to Steve, that man, he's the assassin, basically. The assassin draws on Steve and Steve shoots him and kills him. So now the plan is switched in that 5-0 won't be looking for an assassin. They think they've got the assassin. So when I said everybody was committed to sparkle motion, I was not lying. This guy ended up dying in an improvisation to make sure that Lemira ended up dead. And obviously, it's not a spoiler to say that he doesn't die. But of course, I'm not going to tell you how they thwarted this assassination plot. But I will tell you, Marburg's fingerprints were all over it. And you know who else made a mark on this episode? Our guest cast. So let's take a look at them, shall we? As I said, Dr. Gregorius Lemira was played by John Marley. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in the first season episode, The Big Kahuna. Claus Marburg was played by Eric Braden. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in the second season episode, A Bullet for McGarrett. Anna was played by Charlene Polite. She turned up in episodes of Star Trek, Mayberry RFD, The Doris Day Show, Canon, Mod Squad, and The Blue Knight. She was also in the movie The Memory of Us, and she was in the TV movie Love, Hate, Love. Samuel Hammock, our State Department guy, was played by Walter Brook. As I said, he is D.A. Frank Scanlon on The Green Hornet. He also turned up in episodes of The Phil Silvers Show, Gunsmoke, The Donna Reed Show, Hawaiian Eye, The Virginian, Twilight Zone, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, McHale's Navy, The Munsters, Perry Mason and the New Perry Mason, Big Valley, The Wild Wild West, Dragnet 67, Ironside, Death Valley Days, Bonanza, Dan August, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, and The Lawyers, The Magician, The Incredible Hulk, Mannix, Emergency, Kojak, Swat, The Blue Knight, Big Hawaii, Gemini Man, The Six Million Dollar Man, Auto Man, The Waltons, A-Team, The Rockford Files, Nero Wolf, MASH, Little House on the Prairie, Quincy, M.E., Trapper John, M.D., and Simon and Simon. He was also in the movies Beyond Reason, Jagged Edge, Separate Ways, Black Sunday, the 1977 flick with Robert Shaw and Bruce Dern, Framed, The Return of Count Yorga, and Tora Tora Tora. He was also in the TV movies Winter Kill, Stowaway to the Moon, Street Killing, Mirror, Mirror, and Whitewater Rebels. Andreas was played by Nicholas Giorgiati. He was Enrico Rossi on The Untouchables. He also turned up in episodes of Hawaiian Eye, Combat, Batman, Mannix, Get Smart, Mission Impossible, Kojak, Quincy Emmy, TJ Hooker, and the 1985 Equalizer. He was also in the movies Fit to Kill, Indecent Proposal, Delta Pi, Seven, the 1979 movie with William Smith and Art Metrano in The Age of Violence, and he was in the TV movies Poor Devil and Kojak, The Price of Justice. Paulos was Antonio Scaradimus. This is his only credit. The Dark Man, a.k.a. our sniper, was played by Ronald Kent. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in The Singapore File. The Greek Doctor was Wright Esser. This is his fifth of 11 episodes. The Greek Colonel was Henry Woltag. This is his first of two episodes. The airport official was John Henry Russell. This is his second of two episodes. He was also in the box. 
Our nurse was played by Camille Yamamoto. This is her first of three episodes. She was also an episode of the 1980 Magnum P.I. And Dr. Chin was played by Harry Chang. This is his first of nine episodes. He was also in episodes of The McKinsey's of Paradise Cove, Barnaby Jones, Magnum P.I., and One West Waikiki. He turned up in the movie Ghost of the China Sea, and he was in the TV movie Stickin' Together. Our writer, Eric Bersavisi, in addition to writing credits for 12 episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also has creator credits for McLean's Law and Chicago Story, as well as writing credits for two episodes of I Spy, two episodes of The Virginian, three episodes of The Danny Thomas Hour, four episodes of Assignment Vienna, and three episodes of Police Story. He also has writing credits for the movies Take a Hard Ride, Out of Season, Three the Hard Way, The Culpepper Cattle Company, Hell in the Pacific, and Day of the Evil Gun, and he has writing credits for the TV movies The Deadly Hunt, Assignment Munich, Strange Homecoming, Flesh and Blood, and Top of the Hill, and he has writing credits for the miniseries Noble House and Shogun, as well as the TV movie Shogun. And that is the second shot it's a pretty good episode as far as I'm concerned. For one being that's so politically heavy, I'm not usually real interested in those episodes, but this one was really good. Like I said, the assassination plot was quite intricate and we all know how much I love those. It was incredibly risky, a little mind-boggling. Everybody was committed to sparkle motion all the way through. I did like the ending. And of course, I always like seeing Eric Braden because it's Eric Braden. He has great eyebrows. Anyway, this one is an interesting one. Give it a watch. Chen, see if you can find that bullet. Well, how come I always get stuck with these jobs? Because you're so good at it. I see, Chen. What does it look like? The burglar got caught in the act and panicked. Mrs. Wallace said her husband was over on a business trip. He always carried a lot of cash, more expensive ring. Right a weapon? Not yet. Doc have any boys? It'll be up fast, but on first look, he said there were several blows to the back of the head, probably with a fairly smooth, flat object heavy enough to do the job. And Wallace's wife found the body, huh? Yeah. She was walking on the beach, came back around 3 a.m. Looks like she scared the guy off. How do we know that? Her uh, jewel case was still in the bedroom. There was a watch on Wallace's wrist. Platinum. Sloppy. Where were the servants? None live in. How about the daughter? HPD is bringing over now. Mrs. Wallace in there? Yeah. Episode 4, Time and Memories. Air date October 7th, 1970. Directed by John Llewellyn Moxie. This is his first of two episodes. And written by Gerald Ludwig. This is his second of 12. Taking a very late night walk on the beach, Kathy Wallace spots a payphone and decides to make a call. A groggy Steve answers, but as soon as he recognizes former lover Kathy's voice, she hangs up. She goes home to find her husband, Frank, dead in the living room. Five-O catches this case it's because Frank Wallace is a prominent lawyer who brings a lot of business to Hawaii. At first glance, it looks like a break-in gone wrong. Wallace was apparently bludgeoned to death, and Mrs. Wallace scared the perp off when she came home. Steve goes to talk to the wife and is surprised to find that it's Kathy. He asks why she called him, but they're interrupted by Danny informing them that Wallace's daughter from his first marriage, Joan, is there. Joan is understandably distraught by her father's murder, and Steve allows Kathy to take her and leave. At the office, Chin gives Steve the Emmys a purport. Yep, 
definitely bludgeoned, and the TOD puts his demise about 12.30, two and a half hours before the body was discovered. So that, along with the fact that not much was taken, disputes the idea that Kathy scared off a burglar. Steve talks to Roswell Borden, a friend of Frank's, that was probably the last person to see him alive. Prior to his death, Frank and Kathy had been at a party at Borden's house. Frank was an excellent lawyer, but kind of a dick. He started in on Kathy at the party, and she ended up slapping him and leaving, taking their car. Frank just laughed and had another drink. Borden dropped him off at the beach house a little after midnight. He just assumed Kathy was there because the car was in the drive. Steve talks to Joan at the airport where she's waiting to meet her fiancé, Arthur Dixon, who's flying in from San Francisco. She was at the party, too, but she doesn't know what her dad and stepmother were arguing about. Her dad was a lawyer, and he liked to argue, but admits that he changed after her mother died. She was still at the party after her father left. Arthur called her there just after midnight, and they talked for about 15 minutes. So it seems she has an alibi. Kathy tells Steve that Arthur is a lawyer in Frank's firm, but Frank was sure that he was all wrong for Joan. He wasn't happy with their engagement. Kathy went along with him on it. She tells Steve that when he came to her husband, they both knew just what buttons to push. It wasn't uncommon for them to argue. She left the party and went to the beach house, but left when she heard someone coming. She thought it was Wallace, and she was still pissed, so she didn't want to see him. Kathy finally admits that the reason she called Steve was to admit that he was right all those years ago. She says she didn't kill her husband and asks if Steve believes her. He's clearly conflicted. Kids playing on the beach find a blood-stained wrap. It belonged to Kathy and the blood is Wallace's type. Kathy admits that she was going to wear it to the party but changed her mind. She thinks she left it on the couch. Steve again questions her alibi, specifically asking if anyone else was on the beach that night who may have seen her, but she's got nothing. At the office, Chin brings in a witness, a man who lives and works next door to the beach house, who tells Danny that he saw a woman in a party dress running from the house around 1 in the morning. She left by car. Steve talks to Arthur about Wallace, specifically about enemies, but Arthur owes everything to him and doesn't want to speak against him. When Steve tells him that robbery wasn't the motive and Kathy's alibi is weaker than a newborn's neck, Arthur changes his tune. He says that he put in his resignation because Wallace told him to choose between the job and Joan. When he called her at the party, they were discussing their plans to marry against Wallace's wishes. But he insists that Kathy doesn't have a motive because she wouldn't inherit. Joan was the sole beneficiary of Wallace's will. He doesn't think Kathy did it. Later, Arthur and Joan come into Steve's office and Joan admits she was the woman that the witness saw leaving the house. She'd gone to confront her father about marrying Arthur, hoping to change his mind, but when she got there, she realized it was pointless and fled. She never went inside the house or saw her father. Steve asks why she didn't mention this before, but Arthur says it's all academic, considering that the time of death placed Joan on the phone with him. Steve reminds him that TOD is only approximate. Kono finds something with his metal detector. It's the murder weapon, a handheld hair dryer with Wallace's blood and Kathy's fingerprints. Daniel lays out all of the facts for Steve. They quarreled, her wrap has his blood on it, and her hair dryer with her fingerprints is the murder weapon. He has enough to charge her, but he won't. Not yet. Okay, full disclosure up front. Kathy Wallace is played by Diana Moldar, and for some reason, I don't like her, and I don't know why. It has absolutely nothing to do with her acting, because I think she's a great actress. 
and she doesn't always play unpleasant characters. I've seen her play very wonderful characters, nice characters, characters that you aren't suspecting of murder. But for whatever reason, whenever she pops up into anything that I'm watching, I'm just like, I groan. I'm ugh, when I see her and I don't know why. I'm sure she is a perfectly nice person in real life. The only thing I can think of is that she murdered me in a past life and I'm holding a grudge. So hopefully I'll let it go next time around. But in the present, I try to remain objective when it comes to anything that she is in, and I try not to judge it too harshly. As it is, I'm kind of met on this episode, not her fault, but it does have some interesting points to it, mainly that we are dealing with a huge element of Steve's past. Because even though when I did the plot breakdown, I basically only stuck to the case. But throughout the episode, we have a lot of flashbacks of Steve and Kathy's relationship. And they don't necessarily go in order. So the first flashback we get is not the two of them meeting. It's the two of them kissing. I think the second flashback we get is actually her leaving the island, them breaking up. That's the last time he saw her until this case. A lot of these flashbacks actually happen while Steve's at the speech house in the middle of the night in the dark, basically reminiscing about this relationship and breakup. And it's a little creepy that he's wandering through the dark of the house where his former lover's husband was murdered, but ends up being useful still. So it's interesting the order in which they do the flashbacks so you get a feel of their relationship. And it was a very serious one for Steve. He wanted to marry her but she couldn't make that same commitment. So it's interesting to watch this case unfold when Steve is so clearly conflicted about everything going on. Because here's the thing, you don't know what side he's kind of coming down on, where his objectivity is affected. Because she did kind of betray him at the end of their relationship, but he also cared about her. So does he want her to be innocent or does he wish her to be guilty so he gets some sort of punishment and revenge for what she did to him, for breaking his heart? And there's also this great cutscene that they do to help not only keep the doubt about Kathy, but also keep the doubt about where Steve lies, whether he thinks she did it or not. I think, I want to say it's Arthur asks him, I don't think Kathy Wallace did this, do you? And this scene cuts to Steve saying, yes, I do. But he's talking about something else. So it was a great cut scene that helps cast out not only on Kathy, but also on Steve's frame of mind. Which, of course, does come up later in the episode when Danny presents all of the information, all of the evidence to Steve and says that he can make an arrest. But Steve declines. He doesn't want to do it yet. And so Danny kind of confronts him a little bit. You've got enough to charge her. Charger and Booker. No, not yet, Denham. Look, Steve, this is no ordinary case. Not for you. Why don't you let us handle it? Kono, Chin, and me. For your own good. And the great part about that scene is actually the response that Steve has is just a look. And Jack Lord does so much with just a look. He's insulted that Danny would suggest that he take a backseat in this case. He's also kind of establishing that I'm in charge. I get to make that call. But there's also this look that conveys just how much he's kind of conflicted and struggling with that. That's all in there, all together. Jack Lord just doesn't get the credit he deserves. 
So it's interesting to watch Jack Lord walk this line throughout the entire episode. It's a very quiet episode in that respect because in previous episodes, when we see that Steve has an emotional involvement in the case, we see how fiery and how aggressive he can get, particularly when it comes to defending the members of his team. In this case, this is someone he cared about very much from his past who also wronged him. And so you do not see him really go one way or the other. You see him walk that line. You watch him walk that line. And so it's a fantastic performance from Jack Lord to give Steve a new emotional depth we haven't seen quite yet and the restraint that he is exhibiting throughout this episode. So that part of the episode is, is quite intriguing. The case itself is pretty straightforward Here's the thing. They make a really good case that Kathy could have very well killed her husband. However, there is no shortage of suspects involved, which gives Steve the angle to thoroughly investigate this case to give Kathy every opportunity to not be guilty. Because obviously we have Joan. Daddy didn't want her to marry her fiance and was going to cut her off and was complicating things for Arthur in his job. We also have Borden, who we find out later Wallace was going to vote, basically vote him out of his own company in a board member vote. So it's one of those things where common saying is an asshole never goes missing and an asshole never gets murdered. Nobody ever wants to speak ill of the dead. So when Five O is interviewing people about Wallace, and it's pretty much Steve doing most of the work here when it comes to interviewing the main suspects, when he's interviewing them, nobody wants to speak badly about him. They mitigate everything they say. Instead of saying he was a combative prick who liked to be contrary and pick fights with people and liked to be a dick, they just keep saying he was a lawyer, he liked to argue. And that was the basis of his and Kathy's relationship because even she says he was a difficult man to live with. And you get that from Joan. Again, she said he was a lawyer, he liked to argue, but he changed after her mother died. So he was more of a prick after that fact that obviously his first wife's death affected him. And then you have Borden who also goes on to say not only does he like to argue, but he can be a bit ruthless. And then you have Arthur who doesn't want to say anything against the man because he's the one that gave him a job in his firm, helped him get to be where he is. But when Steve drops the bomb and says, yeah, it wasn't robbery. Somebody went after him. We think it might've been Kathy. And he that's when he comes up with, well, he was kind of an asshole. And he told me to pick between Joan and my job and I picked Joan. So there are no shortage of people who could possibly want him dead. But everybody else seems to have an alibi with the exception of Kathy because Borden went back to the party. What his possible motive hinged on was a proxy vote that Wallace hadn't turned in yet. That would have kicked him off the board of his company. And Steve actually catches him later breaking into the house looking for it. And that's when Borden admits all of this. And when they propose that he could have killed Wallace over this, he goes, if I had, I wouldn't have left the house without that vote. So that kind of lets him off the hook. With Joan, she has an alibi and so does Arthur. Arthur was in San Francisco and Joan was on the phone at the party with him. But then we later saw that Joan went to the house and came back with no one in the party noticing. And time of death is only approximate, as Steve points out. So 
Joan's alibi is more certain than her stepmother's. Kathy was walking along the beach for three hours and there's nobody that she can think of who might have seen her. And of course, there's also the little matter of the phone call at the very beginning of the episode. Because the way it comes out throughout the episode, because Steve asks her about it twice before she finally answers. And when she makes that phone call, she doesn't really say much of anything. She just called to talk is what she said. It's three o'clock in the morning. Please do not call me at three o'clock in the morning just to talk. So obviously Steve didn't believe that because nobody does that. She had something on her mind and she called him. And so it kind of implies that she was feeling guilty over what she possibly had done. And that's why she was calling Steve, but then she changed her mind. So it's actually brilliantly set up to make it look like Kathy is the killer. I mean, there's all of this evidence and thematically as well, you get that sense that yes, she very well could have killed her husband and she's banking on Steve bailing her out. And then on the flip side of all of this, we have Steve dealing with all of his emotions. Because throughout the flashbacks, you come to understand exactly what happened with their relationship. And like I said, it doesn't go in order. So you know that at the end, Steve felt betrayed and lied to, but you don't know exactly why. And then when you see when Steve and Kathy first meet, he takes her to the Arizona Memorial, the Pearl Harbor Memorial because her brother died on the Arizona when she was only a year old. And so you get a little background on Kathy. My father worshiped him. I always wanted him to take over the family business. And what does your father do? Do <laughs> everything and it all makes money. Can't you tell by looking at me? Poor little rich girl. Huh? That's right, Lieutenant. Champagne and caviar and all that? That's all absolutely delicious. And why come here? To think. Remember about me. Everything I've wanted to do. Everything I've wanted to be. <sighs> Sounds very serious. It's just in here I seem to be able to think more clearly. So the flashbacks kind of all start to fit together in that she tells Steve that she can't commit to him because she's already promised someone else that she would marry him. And when you put that in the context with her father's business and her basically being the person that was inheriting all of that, she was basically marrying someone as a business deal. And she was doing this for her father. That person was Frank Wallace. She was going to be his second wife and help raise his daughter. It's not explicitly said, but that's what you figure out, piecing together the puzzles of the, the flashbacks. That's what happened. That she picked her obligation to her father and the money over love. And it mirrors, to a certain extent, Arthur and Joan's relationship in that Kathy was backing Frank in that Frank didn't want Joan to marry Arthur, didn't think he was good enough for her, and Kathy went along with it. That's what she wanted to tell Steve with that phone call, was that he was right that she should have stood up for herself and married the person that she loved instead of going along with this business deal. And she was making that same mistake again with Arthur and Joan. And that key kind of comes up when Kathy is finally arrested, when Steve basically has no choice because he has all of this evidence. So in addition to the fight, in addition to the crap alibi she has, 
They find her wrap stained with blood. The blood looks like wine. Some kids find it when they're playing on the beach. So they have that. Then they send Chin Ho and Kono to look around on the beach with a little metal detector and they find the murder weapon, which is a hand dryer. Now this is a 1970s handheld hair dryer, which means it probably weighs 15 pounds and is solid metal. So yes, it could kill someone. The hair dryers they make today are made out of plastic. They would shatter. You might cut your scalp if somebody smacked you with it. These were deadly and it had Wallace's blood on it and it has Kathy's fingerprints on it. Obviously it's her hairdryer. So with all of this evidence, with no other suspects coming through, Steve has no choice but to arrest Kathy. And the thing is, is that in that scene where it finally comes down to it, because throughout the flashbacks, we've seen them have this thing about coffee, asking if you want one lump or two. And you see it in one of their sweet scenes. And then you see it in their last scene together before she leaves, before the, when they break up. And then during that scene, he pours her coffee and brings over the coffee in the sugar bowl. And it mirrors that moment from earlier, from the flashback of the sweet scene. And you can see how difficult this is for both of them. Like I said, I might not, for whatever reason, like Diana Muldar have that visceral reaction to her but she is a really great actress and she portrayed that very subtly but very well in that she recognizes that moment he recognizes that moment from their past and then he has to arrest her so joan finally goes to see her in jail to let her know that arthur is arranging for bail and they have this really intense scene Kathy admits that she made that mistake of backing Frank when she should have backed Joan and permitted Joan or helped Joan follow her heart in marrying Arthur instead of doing what she did. So there's a lot of layers happening in this episode. Of course, the main goal is capturing the killer, and it's not a spoiler to say that, of course, 5-0 does that. But I will say that it all comes down to a phone call. <laughs> You know what else was a good call? Our guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Kathy Wallace was played by Diana Maldar. This is her first of two episodes. She was also Anne Carwell on The Doctors, Jeannie Orloff on Dr. Kildare, Belle on The Survivors, Joy Adamson on Born Free, Chris Coughlin on McLeod, Judge Eleanor Hooper on The Tony Randall Show, Ginny on His Honor, Terry Seymour on Fits and Bones, Dr. Alice Foley on A Year in the Life, I probably know her best as Dr. Pulaski on Star Trek The Next Generation, and she's probably best known as Rosalind Shays on L.A. Law because she made that grand exit, and she was the voice of Dr. Leslie Tompkins on Batman the Animated Series. She also turned up in episodes of Gunsmoke, The Invaders, Star Trek, the original series, the Courtship of Eddie's Father, Mod Squad, Dan August, Ironside, The Virginian, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Search, Mannix, Kung Fu, Canon, The Rockford Files, Hunter, Lucan, Fantasy Island, Love Boat, Heart to Heart, Murder, She Wrote, Matlock, and Empty Nest. She was in the movies Beyond Reason, Chosen Survivors, McHugh, The Others, and The Swimmer. And she was in the TV movies Call to Danger, Hog Wild, The Deadly Triangle, To Kill a Cop, the Maneaters Are Loose, The Return of Frank Cannon, and The Return of Sam McLeod. 
Arthur Dixon was played by Martin Sheen without a mustache. This is his second of two episodes. We saw him previously with a mustache in Cry Lie. Roswell Borden was played by Edward Andrews. He was Commander Roger Adrian on Broadside. He was Colonel Fairburn on The Doors Day Show. And he was Harry Flood on Super Train. He also turned up in episodes of Naked City, Rawhide, Thriller, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Invaders, The Wild Wild West, Ironside, The Andy Griffith Show, I Dream of Jeannie, Mod Squad, Bewitched, Bonanza, Love American Style, The Rookies, Ellery Queen, Charlie's Angels, Love Boat, Quincy, BJ and the Bear, and Three's Company. He was in the movies Gremlins, Sixteen Candles, The Photographer, The Million Dollar Duck, How to Frame a Fig, Tora Tora Tora, The Trouble with Girls, Send Me No Flowers, Son of Flubber, Elmer Gantry, and Tea and Sympathy. And he was in the TV movies The Man Who Came to Dinner, The Fireman's Ball, and Undercover with the KKK. Joan Wallace was played by Catherine Cannon. This is her first of two episodes. She was Captain Dottie Dixon on The Black Sheep Squadron. She was Mae Woodward on Father Murphy. She was Priscilla on Heartbeat. And she was Felice Martin on Beverly Hills 90210, the 1990s series. She also turned up in episodes of The Survivors with Diana Maldar. Medical Center, Emergency, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Streets of San Francisco, Future Cop, Barnaby Jones, Lucan, Battlestar Galactica, BJ and the Bear, Chips, Magnum P.I., Airwolf, Empty Nest, Blossom, Doogie Howser, M.D., The New My Camera, and My Camera Private Eye, Jag, and She Spies. And she was in the movies Shattered Lies, The Hidden, and Fool's Paradise. And she was in the TV movies Women in Chains, Can Ellen Be Saved, The Red Light Sting, and Matters of the Heart, and she was in the miniseries, The Contender. The stewardess was played by Kathleen O'Rourke. This is her only credit. The houseboy was played by Jose Mordeno. This was his only credit. Louise's mother was played by Helen Vincent. This is her only credit. And Louise was played by Willa Jo Broussard. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in King Kamehameha Blues. Our director was John Llewellyn Moxie. In addition to two episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he actually directed quite a bit of British television, including two episodes of London Playhouse, four episodes of Coronation Street, four episodes of Murder Bag, three episodes of Z Cars, ten episodes of ITV Television Playhouse, six episodes of the Edgar Wallace Mystery Theater, 16 episodes of Armchair Theater, 5 episodes of The Baron, and 27 episodes of ITV Play of the Week. When it comes to American television, he has directing credits for 7 episodes of The Saint, 4 episodes of Name of the Game, 2 episodes of The Mod Squad, 7 episodes of Mission Impossible, 10 episodes of Mannix, 4 episodes of Kung Fu, 2 episodes of Masquerade, 6 episodes of Magnum P.I., and 18 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. He also has directing credits for the movies The City of the Dead, Death Trap, Ricochet, Face of a Stranger, and the English language version of Psycho Circus. But he's probably best known for his TV movie work, and he has directing credits for Escape, A Taste of Evil, The Night Stalker, The Strange and Deadly Occurrence, Conspiracy of Terror, Nightmare in Badham County, Smash Up on Interstate 5, Intimate Strangers, Sanctuary of Fear, The Power Within, No Place to Hide, the Violation of Sarah McDavid, Killjoy, I Desire, Through Naked Eyes, 
and deadly deception. And that is Time and Memories. Like I said, I'm kind of met on it despite the fact that Jack Lord gives it a great performance as a very conflicted Steve McGarrett. The case is actually pretty okay. It's well juxtaposed against Steve's flashbacks of the relationship that he had with Kathy. But for whatever reason, I'm lukewarm on it. And I'm not saying it's a bad episode. I think it's a good episode. I think it's interesting. Like I said, Jack Lord gives a great performance. But for me, it just, it doesn't thrill me. But you know what? You might not feel the same way. Give it a watch. Chin! Chin Ho! Yeah! What do you got? Maybe the jackpot. And that is episode 28 of Bookum Dano. Two different episodes tonally. We have a big political conspiracy on one end, and on the other end, we have a very personal story happening. So we have a real wide scope when it comes to these two episodes. Like I said, I liked the second shot a little better than I liked Time and Memories, but both of them are good episodes and definitely deserve your time. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the added commentary from the loudass bird that only tweets when I am recording and my redneck neighbors from not next door, but across the street who are unnecessarily loud. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You could also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want to hear about my theories about being murdered in a past life by Diana Muldar in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So don't be afraid to commit to that incredibly risky sparkle motion plan. And remember to stay objective if your former lover gets accused of murder. Until next time, aloha.